welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, a podcast where we are striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana, the promised land of the North, despite what everybody keeps saying about that. I keep hearing people saying, no, it's the promising land, but not the promised land. No, I assure you, this is the place to be, Marion, Indiana. (laughs) Our guest today, this is uh, the second time that we've had a president on the podcast, but the first time we've had a a ruling elder on the podcast. But we have uh, Dr. Calvin Trout, who serves as a ruling elder in Grace Gibsonia, RP Church in uh, Gibsonia, Pennsylvania. But one of the reasons we're having him here is because he's the pastor of Geneva College in the idyllic uh, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. So, uh, Dr. Trout, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Aaron. It's glad to be with you guys. Yeah, we're uh, we're happy to have you. I was uh, telling Joe offline, you were the first person who we've emailed to try and schedule for the podcast that we've had an assistant come and uh, work through that. So, so we feel very honored that uh, you're making the time for us. I know you're you're a busy man. Uh, there's plenty of good work to do at Geneva College, Aaron, mm-hmm. and it's a being a Calvinist institution. Having good work to do is important for us. Six mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> a- amen. Amen. Well, um, before we kind of get into these these questions, I wonder if you could tell us maybe just a little bit about yourself and then how long you've been serving as president of Geneva. Good. Okay. Um, I uh, I actually have been at Geneva uh, in a number of capacities, uh, but as president, I have been uh, here about seven and a half years. Uh, I started in July. Uh, of 2016. Uh, And so I've been in the presidential role. Before that, I served as a member of the Board of Trustees and the member of the Board of Corporators, uh, both for uh, 10 years or more prior to coming here. But the Lord um, really called me into higher education a number of years after I graduated from Geneva College. I'm a Geneva alum from 1983, class of 83. And I was working in Washington, D.C. on things that I had been trained to do in college and enjoy doing a lot. Um, And the Lord just threw uh, uh, people in the church and other folks uh, brought to mind that uh, perhaps I should be in higher education, which was a surprise to me. That came as a surprise Mm -hmm. to me. (laughs) When I graduated from college, I wanted to go to work and I and I never thought I was going to be in a classroom again. And so uh I took counsel with people that were older than I uh, and that I trusted, uh, both my father and my father-in-law, but a number of professors and other people that I trusted in various walks of life and in the church. And they unanimously said, of course, you should be in higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and you guys know uh, uh, Amy, my wife, and she was strongly supportive. And, and uh, um, I referred to her as the prime minister of household affairs. And when the prime minister uh, weighs in on something like that, you say like, okay, Lord, <laughs> I will take this seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so um, as a result of that, after six years working in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, I went to graduate school at Pennsylvania State University. I was there for five years uh, doing my master's and PhD, and, and therefore sixth as a lecturer on the faculty at Penn State um, then went to Bloomington, Indiana, uh, and worked uh, at Bloomington uh, at IU uh, for um, 
for uh, one year. I expected to be there three years. I was on a three-year visiting contract, and uh, the Lord called us to Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Um, uh, and I do have to have a little shout out to uh, brothers and sisters in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. We learned more about what it means to be the church in one year at Bloomington, Indiana, um, than we learned in a year any other place. Now, we have mm-hmm. been in wonderful congregations. Uh, we've been members in the State College Congregation and and uh, uh, North Hills Congregation in Pittsburgh and learned a tremendous amount in all those places. But just in terms of a one-year framework, we really, based on the love of the people and how they do ministry in Bloomington and the work of the church there, uh, we learned an awful lot in a year. It felt like we were there longer than mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, um, so anyhow, I'm grateful for that. And then I was at Duquesne University for 20 years uh, and um, was involved in building a rhetoric PhD program there at the university. Um, uh, and so that's kind of the the path uh, that the Lord has taken us on in terms of why I would be in the kind of role that I'm in now. Um, and um, and I've been a ruling elder um, in Christ Church uh, in various places, <laughs> um, but for many moons. We'll just mm-hmm. say for many, many moons. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, well, very good. I appreciate uh, kind of giving us that that background. And uh, I get to see some of the uh, Bloomington folks. We've got our Presbyterian meeting uh, tomorrow at time of recording. So I'm looking forward to seeing some of them. So I might pass uh, pass that along uh, to them. Yeah. Um, but kind of getting into the, the questions that uh, we sent you, when we think about higher ed, um, why should we uh, have Christian colleges and even as you kind of articulate that, what's the purpose of having a Christian college in general, and then maybe even scoping in uh, Geneva in particular? Yeah. So um, really appreciate that question for this reason. Um, Literally for generations in the United States of America, people would never ask a question about higher education's value or purpose. Uh, It was assumed And um, given the kind of societal chaos and confusion that we've been going through, um, people's lack of trust in institutions that has been visited upon the government, for instance, for for many decades and many other institutions has now landed on higher education as an institution. Um, And I think that the questions about higher education are good questions because people are starting to look under the hood of what higher education has become in the United States. What a lot of people may not know very well is that there are certain ways in which we could answer the question, sort of why should we have Christian colleges and Christian higher education uh, by saying, why should we have any other kinds of higher education? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That, That historically, um, higher education was uh, was started in its in a form that looks anything like what we have today by Christians, mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 so um, the earliest purposes of higher education uh, really were tied um, to the work of the church and the desire to have a clergy 
that could read and understand the Bible and the original languages, <laughs> which meant that people had to study all kinds of subjects, not just language, mm-hmm. uh, to really understand things. It was based on an understanding of history that was teleological and biblical, <laughs> that took cre- the creation uh, as a starting point and, and a reason. The, the Bible takes history incredibly seriously. All you have to do is read a genealogy mm-hmm. <laughs> and you get insight into that. And so the whole curriculum of higher education uh, was grounded in uh, biblical and Christian thought. Um, and it's only in modernity um, uh, it, when you start to think about, for instance, the shift from the British form of higher education to the German form of higher education in the early 20th century and and the specialization and the uh, and the separation at, uh, from an orientation, a Christian orient- orientation that says all knowledge is coherent because all things hold together in Christ and everything is being up- upheld moment by moment by the word of his power to an idea where we have disciplines that are separated and never talk to each other <laughs> and a whole apparatus that's designed to treat a, a school as though it was a bureaucratic administrative mm-hmm. industry um that's that, that and so and so if we start with the state of sort of secularized public and um privileged higher education today and then say why should there be christian colleges and universities um without any of that historical background uh it it it's a very interesting question and the answer is as radical as the scriptures and christ himself Mm-hmm. In terms of why we need Christian colleges, because um, the the formation of a Christian mind at a level of sophistication and intensity that then prepares people to serve Christ in all different kinds of ways makes Christian college essential. But especially for believers and people who trust Christ and take him at his word who believe in the promises and who trust the scriptures, a Christian college is essential because the starting points of knowledge uh, are at the beginning of a college education in a Christian college context like Geneva's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's how I'd start to answer that question. And therefore, what's happening in a place like Geneva looks and feels a lot different than what you would experience in any secularized educational context, um, public or private. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that answer. I, I love that, uh, kind of like, well, why would we have secular colleges is probably uh, the, the better question even. Um, you know, and I, uh, I just finished my MDiv about two years ago, coming up on two years, and I told myself I would never go back into a classroom again. But after hearing that answer, I'm kind of like stirred up even to... <laughs> I <laughs> uh, can continue to learn, especially at a place like Geneva. And uh, I should tell you, uh, we're sending at least one of our uh, seniors in high school. He's going to Geneva uh, this coming fall. And we're, we're working on some of our other high schoolers to to consider Geneva. Uh, so Wonderful. Yeah, Wonderful. Yeah. Looking, looking forward to uh, their experience and uh, them being blessed by the, by the college there. So, um, Pastor, you can help yeah. me with something. Yeah, I'll it's do my very best. Important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyone that comes from our churches... Uh, and any, really any Christian kid that comes to Geneva, but I especially want to make sure that 
when Reformed Presbyterian young people come to Geneva, um, that they they need to feel pressure from the adult conspiracy to make an early decision about what congregation will mm -hmm. be their home congregation. Mm -hmm. Yep, and they need to get into a dash group, which is open to to a wide range of students, but uh, College Hill Reformed kind of coordinates it. Yep. Uh, and they need to get into that because um, the correlation between young people walking in the faith after they leave college and having had that kind of home church experience while they're in college is dramatic. Mm -hmm. yep. Hopping around for church and church just doesn't get it done. Mm -hmm. Now, some people plan to be in one congregation for a whole year and then another for a whole year. I think that's that makes sense. And that fulfills that kind of uh, those kinds of things. But anyhow, mm -hmm. just. A yeah, well, as you know, I interned at uh, Hope Community there, so um, I'm, I'm pretty biased on who I would send people to. Um, but we uh, we had uh, Titus Martin on here a while ago. He was, I think, one of our first few guests, and he talks about the Dash groups and the college ministry that they have. So any yeah. any listeners who are curious about that, they can go back and uh, listen to the episode with uh, Titus Martin talking about Dash groups. Um, so, yeah, yep. no, and I, I, that's one of the things that I love about Geneva is particularly if you're Reformed Presbyterian, <clears throat> even if you're not, I think, you know, you, you'd be served at an RP church, but you're, you're not spoiled for choice or you are spoiled for choices when it comes to going to Geneva. There's a lot of good. I think we're up to maybe five now with uh, the Beaver River Valley uh, church plant from right. College Hill right. there. Um, so, yeah, pl plenty of places to go to, plenty of places to uh, uh, be served and to serve while you're there in college. Uh, so, yeah, very good. Um, I should have said this at the beginning of the podcast, really for our listeners, Joe Smith is on his way to uh, Presbytery. Um, and so he's in the car with a bunch of other fellows. So he's with us on the call, but he's muted. So you might hear him pop in and out every now and then. Um, but that's why he's not talking so much. So we're kind of swapping roles. The last two weeks, I was kind of sick. So he was taking the brunt of the uh, questions and now it's on me. So that's why you're not hearing uh, Joe Bloviate all the time. You like that term, Joseph Bloviate? He's not even looking at me. There we go. There's There's, there's the smile. All right. Well, now getting, getting a little bit uh, more serious, as you've talked about kind of the importance of uh, Christian colleges and um, the purpose of Geneva in particular, can you give us uh, kind of a brief history of the, the college itself? This was actually a question that was sent to us by a listener wanting to know some of the history of Geneva. So could you maybe give us maybe five to, I mean, really take as long as you want, um, a history of the college and then what makes Geneva unique amongst the plethora of other Christian colleges? Yeah, that, that um, um, let me try to just give you a basic framework, mm -hmm. um, because what the Lord has done at Geneva is a pretty remarkable thing. It's a pretty remarkable thing. So Geneva starts out in 1848 in Northwood, Ohio, um, close to the current Bell Center congregation mm -hmm. of the RP Church. It's not far away. Um, and it really starts, it's kind of fun to read the the minutes of Presbyterian Synod about this, because it it kind of it's a Presbytery college. Mm -hmm. It's Reformed Presbyterian, but it's a Presbytery college at the beginning. And it was kind of like the people who wanted to start it didn't want to have to wait any longer than they needed to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there was some moving and shaking in there uh, to get things started. And the college uh, had some fits and starts, but it started as a as the Reformed Presbyterian version 
of what American denominations were doing in terms of establishing college education. And so people, obviously, in the early part of the nation's history, people went to the East Coast for college. And they went to places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and those kinds of places. But as people moved west, the transportation system was not well developed and not um, uh, very difficult to make those kinds of trips. And um, so if you read the the 1848 um, uh, the 1848 catalog of Geneva College, it, it says things like, the textbook will be the Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm. <laughs> the Bible will be the textbook and other learned books of value, right? And that's a little bit of a bad trout paraphrase, but that's that that's basically what it says. And it's building on a classical liberal arts model, uh, which is actually deeper and wider than Harvard and Princeton and Yale, but would be commensurate with that kind of education. It's mm -hmm. a classical Christian education designed to prepare people for the ministry, for law, for uh, the the kind of conventional professions, education, um, and that sort of thing. And so the uh, there was a very kind of strict classical curriculum that was expected and 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 that that gets outlined. And so that's happening because we want Reformed Presbyterian youth to be educated, and especially in the area. Um, but if, as you know, uh, with Reformed Presbyterian history, 1848 is a very dynamic time in, uh, in the antebellum mm -hmm. uh, world. And so RP pastors have been preaching on abolition since 1800 in New York City. I mean, we have published... We have published sermons mm -hmm. that are being published in the New York Times from RP ministers against slavery and 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 against and and, and towards abolition, and so there was this very strong sense that Geneva was going to educate um, widely. Mm -hmm. um, our current charter says open to men and women of any race or faith. Faith. I'm glad it says men or women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's good. It's it's clear about that. But the um, so, so there's this. So that's the kind of the starting point. And Geneva was educating and granting degrees to women and uh, freedmen, right? Freed slaves in the North and African Americans in the 1860s. Mm -hmm. So very, very much ahead of its time. Very much ahead yeah. of its time. And and everyone needs to read the Covenant of 1871 to understand the church's mm -hmm. position of all human beings as being made in the image of God. And and um, uh, and and the and our deep commitment that one of the favorite sermon texts um, um, was uh, Acts Acts 17. Hmm. And then, you know, and, you know, in the King James Version, it talks about the, this is the the uh, sermon on Mars Hill and the Apostle Paul is saying God made all human, all men out of one blood. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, and there are number numerous sermons preached by RPs in the first half of the century, uh, the 19th century. So, that, so that's it. And there are fun stories, um, you know, students taking slaves uh, from Northwood to Sandusky, Ohio, where they could get on the boat and go to Canada. And, you know, and they're armed. Mm -hmm. They're farm yep. kids, you know, they're carrying, they're, they have rifles. They're, 
people are covered up with with hay and that sort of thing. I, I I'm not advocating for that kind of armament on campus at Geneva today. I just want you to know. <laughs> Uh-huh. We don't want high-powered rifles on campus uh-huh. in general. So then what happens is Geneva is literally recruited by Beaver Falls and in the county to move to Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. And the Harmony Society, uh, which is kind of a kind of a sect that that was uh believed some interesting things eschatologically and so believed in celibacy and died out before the second coming <laughs> happened. Um, uh, they gave us 10, 10 acres, which Old Main uh, sits on right now, the first 10 acres of the mm-hmm. campus, um, and the college moved. Um, and and uh, Beaver Falls and New Brighton were uh, kind of hotbeds of abolitionist activity. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, there were relationships there, and it made sense. Um, and so Geneva has been in Beaver Falls from 1880. Now, here's where the story gets very interesting. Um, Geneva and many other colleges like it became the college, not only for the denomination, but also for the community. Mm -hmm. And so Geneva has offered, always offered a very high quality, rigorous academic curriculum. And so people came to Geneva. And as you move into the 1900s, uh, uh, Geneva starts uh, offering degrees that people in the community need. And so uh, we start a business program. We start an education program. Um, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania started all these state teachers colleges that are around Geneva. They didn't start one in Beaver County because they said Geneva has a great education department. We don't need to build one there. Um we started engineering. We've had it. We celebrated 100 years of engineering just uh, a few years back. Um, and so Geneva, and I think this is part of our reformed heritage that all work is honorable and glorif- you know, and glorifies God. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- the curriculum kind of expanded. At the same time, um, the college maintained great fidelity biblically in the Bible department. But the college by the 1950s would have had people on the faculty and staff who we would think of as well churched in that area era, but not necessarily born again. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the major turning point and what everyone listening to this podcast needs to do is get on the Geneva College website and read the foundational concepts of Christian education. The movement towards foundational concepts, which was adopted by the Board of Trustees and the Board of Corporators in 1967, really started a decade earlier uh, as as people started to think about what does it mean to be a Christian college? And there were some financial challenges in the late 50s. And Dr. Edwin Clark, who was the president at the time, approached the denomination and said it would be helpful if we could have a little bit more financial support from the denomination. And essentially the Synod said wisely, we um, we want to know what's actually going on in the curriculum at Geneva before we send additional funds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in that process, um, the board of corporators 
And Dr. Clark and a group of faculty worked together to develop foundational concepts of Christian education, which is one of the best short articulations of a reformed view of education that's available anywhere. It's six pages long in print on bulletin sized pages. So it's not a long document. It's easy to read. Uh, it's it's very uh, well written. Um, and in the uh, in the writing of that. Geneva College shifted from being a kind of traditional, denominationally related, faithful in the Bible department, which is a big, big issue, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of schools did not stay faithful in the Bible department, but Geneva was sound. Many, many people came to Christ at Geneva through the Bible classes, which were taught by, you know, deeply committed Reformed Presbyterian uh, uh, kind of folks. And um, and when foundational concepts came out, 1967, Vietnam, hmm. the whole world is going crazy uh, as much almost as it is now. And most church related colleges are turning left. Theologically, like they're losing their moorings in the scripture and in the Christian uh, educational tradition, Geneva is turning right. Based on foundation, God's work in foundational concepts of Christian education has put us where we are able to be today, where all as a result of foundational concepts of Christian education, the bylaws changed and every member of the faculty and staff have to be professing faith in Jesus Christ. And have to, um, they don't all have to be Reformed Presbyterians, but they have to be willing to work under the basic framework of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which both uh, the college's charter bylaws and foundational concepts all refer to the Westminster Confession and to the Reformed Presbyterian testimony. And so um, that changes Geneva, but also we adopt a higher, we adopt a um, humanities curriculum that that is a interdisciplinary enter enterprise in saying all of knowledge is coherent at the most basic level. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand the, the coherence of all knowledge uh, and how that holds together. It's a very deeply reformed kind of curriculum. If people understand the broader reach of reformed theology and saying, you know, all of life and, and that the scriptures are, the final authority for every matter of faith and life, including engineering and chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that the biblical uh, um, presuppositions inform everything about how we think about the whole world, which then frees us to think about the whole world. So we don't have to be intimidated by secularization. We don't have to be intimidated. We can read history, philosophy, theory, all this kind of stuff that comes from non-Christian viewpoints. Uh, and we don't have to be afraid of it because we know what our ground is. And our ground is solid and eternal and unchanging mm -hmm. and living and active. And therefore, the ability of a person's mind to develop in really radically biblical ways, but that are equipped to serve in the world, really grows out of foundational concepts 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, do you do you think, and I was thinking about uh, RPTS even with with this, one of the reasons maybe why our institutions have remained grounded in the scriptures might be because of that synod oversight. Would would you kind of attribute it to that? I mean, I obviously that, within the sovereignty of yeah, God, of course. I mean, but... I tell people all the time, we don't have a statement of faith that some board of trustees generated. Mm-hmm. We have the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Reformed Presbyterian Testimony. Mm-hmm. So, so the um, now I will tell you that it's it's um, only in the last ten to fifteen years that we've had the sort of legal direct connection to the synod that we've wanted, mm. um, and uh, that's a whole other story. That you know, the Lord had to start working on that. Then Erskine College blew up. Uh, and that was a that was a kind of a Donnybrook. And uh, we weren't in any position like that. We were in a strong position, but it helped us create um, a stronger relationship between the mm-hmm. church and the college um, that that, yes, I think those things really serve the, the, both the college and the church. Mm-hmm. It's reciprocal. Yeah, I right? think so. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, to have that institutional those institutional commitments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think um <clears throat> I think one of the things that that I I've observed, you know, while I was living in Beaver Falls for for a couple of years, and then you know, kind of serving as a pastor here in Indiana, one of the things that I think about when I think about Geneva is that Geneva is one of the biggest branches of outreach in our denomination. As we think about all of the students that the college reaches, both RP students, of course, but um, other students within the community and other people who come to the, the college, and not all of them are you know Protestant believers, uh, but you think about the education that they receive, many of the people who come to Christ while they're at the college, as, as you mentioned, and then they're kind of sent out into the rest of the country to um, kind of do the work that the Lord has called them to. But we think about the mediatorial kingship of Christ and how uh, it all it is all to it is all kingdom building work you know so oh, I, absolutely I, I i love the college and i and i love the uh, the things that you described here and the work of the college so um, yeah let me just let me just make one comment on that mm-hmm. uh, many of us with across the denomination for many many years have been praying that right we can, want can you, to see. Can you say that again? Come. I think I think we 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 lost connection just a second. So you said yeah, you really okay. built it up, and then right as you were about yeah, to drop okay. the line, we, we lost you for just a second. Yeah. No. No. Um, many of us over many years in our congregational prayer meetings have prayed that we would have more baptisms, mm-hmm. that the Lord would bring people to Himself, right? Um, and those prayers are being answered on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis at Geneva College because of the Ministry of Education at Geneva College. Uh, so many people have a testimony of coming to read the scriptures for the first time. I mean, today in chapel, uh, Pastor Will Baker, who who is a RPTS alum, uh, uh, was preaching on Isaiah 53. It was just direct and vital gospel ministry um, and and probably in terms of our freshman class. Now, we know this. Our freshman class that comes into Geneva College, 80, 75 to 80 percent of those people are professing Christians, which gives us a very good critical mass Christian culture on campus. Mm-hmm. But that means 20 to 25 percent of our freshmen are not Christian. Most of them are not atheists and agnostics. Most of them have just never been in a church. Mm-hmm. And many of them, the Lord uses the college to bring to Christ either while they're with us or within five or 10 years after they leave us. And I hear that testimony all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was a it was a real joy. I mean, it was only like I said, I was only in Beaver Falls for two years, but interacting with some of the students there and just watching them grow, you could see that uh, the college, both in the curriculum through through the professors and the teachers and their relationship with the local congregations, you could see how all of that worked together to kind of help disciple uh, these men and these women uh, to grow uh, as believers in their love for Christ, their love for the church, their their love for the lost, and all those. So, I, I really uh, really do love the college. Um, another question that I have, and this gets into something you touched on a little bit in, in the first question regarding the suspicion that many people have regarding higher education. And, and one of the, the challenges that I think uh, many of our um, institutions, college institutions are suffering from is just the, the expensive cost of higher education. So what, what yeah. are some ways that uh, Geneva can help offset some of the costs? What are, the, what are some scholarships that exist? What, what are some ways that the college can come alongside uh, these young men and women to help them to afford a good education at Geneva? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And one of the things that I have been obviously thinking about and working on since I was a trustee at Geneva and since I was a faculty member, you know, you pay attention to what's happening in higher education. And essentially um, from, from, like 1945 to 1980, the cost of a college education uh, grew by 40, 45%. From 1990, there, it was flat from 80 to 90. From 1990 to today, the sticker price has gone up by 120%. Wow. And so there were these economists uh, who were teaching uh, economics at at um, uh, Bill and Mary, William and Mary, and uh, and they said, "Whoa, this is crazy! What's going on?" And they found that it correlates to the cost that cost increases in um, in legal fees and accounting fees and dentists and 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 uh, barber shops. Hmm. And what they discovered was that there's this correlation in every kind of thing that where technology actually makes things more expensive, not less. Hmm. So the ad addition of technology, because it requires, um, it requires um, people to have command of a large body of knowledge that they can't, that that's non-transferable. And then that gets delivered um, in human, in human contact, whether it's online or whether it's in face-to-face, -face, it doesn't change the need for a teacher and professor. And um, that means that we have to do what you said, which is very, we, we've got to be very attentive to affordability and very thoughtful about how we approach it. So uh, at Geneva, we run really lean. Um, um, and I won't bore you with those kinds of details. Um, we recently discovered based on public publicly available data that were the most affordable Christian college mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania and one of the most affordable Christian colleges in the country, but it's private education. Mm -hmm. It's not a community college. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, uh, we are working very hard um, and we, we, the, I think it's a practical thing very practical for every family to think about a couple of basic things. It, 
how much it's, it was compared to 1945 doesn't matter to me. I have four daughters and I have to think about how they can go to school this year. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's the thing. Number one, um, always go through the full financial aid process with your top two or three schools that you're looking at. Always go through the full financial aid process because scholarships and other opportunities really show up once you get your own specific financial aid package. And for and for Geneva students, um, and especially for students that come to us from the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, we not everyone, but we tend to be on the higher end of academic performance. Mm-hmm. That's to the advantage of students in terms of scholarshiping. Um, we have additional grants that we give to students based on things like whether they attended a Christian school, when to, whether whether they're a member of the denomination, those kinds of things. Those things all break to the advantage of Reformed Presbyterian students on purpose, right? Uh, our students, we want our Reformed Presbyterian students to get the best possible financial aid packages. Um, and so when you go through that whole process, you get to a very different place than when you look at the sticker price. So, for example, a Geneva College education is more affordable than going to Penn State University Park or Pitt Main Campus. Um, you know, and so it gets it, it, it gets you into a zone. Then um, you need to think about what other kind of opportunities you have for making money. Um, and so a lot, a lot of our students are in paid internships or mm-hmm. doing summer jobs. And the job market is so favorable to college students, which it wasn't 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it was hard to find a job. Now it's a lot easier. We have students who are working 20 hours a week while they're going to college during the semester. Calvinists aren't afraid of that. And Mm -hmm. and there are interesting studies that say that students that are working at least 10 hours a week, the same student does better on their their grades if they're working 10 hours a week than if they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, we have... uh, we also have students who will come for two years and then take a semester off so they get a summer and a fall and work so they can pay off some of their loans or earn some more money. And that kind of resourcefulness is really good long term. Mm-hmm. We're supportive of that. So we're so so um, so we think that people need to do that within our communities. People have different views of debt and educational debt. And you need to do what your household is convicted of. I mean, in our personal finance courses, we use some Dave Ramsey material. Um, um, what's really intriguing to me is that um, uh, there was a narrative 10 years ago that was circulating that said, well, you can't go to a place like Geneva because you'll have to borrow so much that you have to delay your marriage and then you'll have to delay having children and delay these good things that you're supposed to have to do. Um, what's actually happening at Geneva, even our students who are having to borrow some are so responsible in paying off whatever debts they have. And and we have students who are getting married between their sophomore and junior, mm-hmm. junior and senior year, and they have the support of their parents to do it. And they're able to swing it financially. They're creative. They don't live in big homes. <laughs> right. I think, Aaron, you probably saw some of that while you were at Geneva. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I lived in one of those tiny homes. <laughs> yeah, they're eating in a lot. They're eating a lot of pasta and they're making mm-hmm. it work. But that, mm-hmm. uh, so, so, um, but it can be done at Geneva in such a way that people are not um, 
overloaded with a bunch of debt when they leave um, and 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 have all these burdens. Um, and we don't want, you know, our basic counsel is never borrow more than the average starting income of people in your major mm-hmm. and never use loan money for anything but your education. Don't buy pizza with loan money. Go out and work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so uh, we're trying to be faithful in that and uh, inviting people. And there might be there could be some people that can't afford it. And and that's OK. That we try to make it affordable. And we have just just for example, 20% of our students come from households with incomes of fifty thousand dollars a year or less. And they don't they don't graduate with uh with six figures in debt. Mm-hmm. They, they're they're able to manage. So uh, it's something to really work through. You want to stay true if you're a if you're a student, you want to work with your parents. And your church, your leaders in your church, and you want to do what's wise. Um, but it's really good to look at it really closely because the quality of the education and the difference in it, the education is dramatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I was shocked by was, uh, you know, I mentioned the young man who's going to be going there this fall. Um, and he, he got some scholarships and I couldn't believe the amount um, and, and how generous the, the college was to, to help him with that. So I'm, I'm very thankful that that he's able to go with minimal I don't even know if he's actually going to have to take out a loan or anything with the amount of scholarships right. that he got. Right. Um, so as his pastor, I'm just very thankful that the college is looking out for him. And I know he's going to get a good education. And I know there's, there's going to be good churches that he's going to go to. So I'm I'm very thankful um, for all the work that you guys are doing there. I've, I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again. So yeah. I do thank you for that. Um, we come to our, our last uh, official question here. And, and Joe, normally we, we ask, um, we have pastors on the podcast most of the time. So, so we ask them preaching questions. So in some vein, we're, we're going to be asking a preaching question, I guess, but it's more in regards to rhetoric. And, and you even hinted at this a bit while you were in DuPont um, with uh, your, your uh, rhetoric, rhetoric classes that you were teaching. Uh, so you're somewhat of an expert on public speaking. Uh, you teach an elective uh, class on public speaking at the seminary that Joe and I were both blessed to be able to take. So um what uh, is the value of rhetoric for preachers? And there's a number of follow-up questions, but but I guess we can just start there um, because preaching is not so much about just rhetoric in and of itself, but how does having good rhetoric um, enhance uh, the preaching, enhance the, the message of the sermon? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the idea of rhetoric as a field includes homiletics as a specialty. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I I uh, um, uh, I think that the relationship is old and good. Now, the popular understanding of rhetoric is not old and good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but um, but I I think that uh, and you've heard me say this in class. Um, what's really really important is that we're deeply committed to content so that the work of exegesis and homiletics, I mean, in hermeneutics, the hermeneutic activity and exegetical activity is crucial Mm -hmm. to opening the scriptures. And one of the things that Augustine always talked about is the relationship. There's a relationship between wisdom and eloquence, right? And if you separate that relationship, you either have wisdom that nobody hears or you have eloquence that's rogue eloquence and empty. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And so it's cultivating that relationship that is at the heart of how rhetoric um, and hermeneutics work together. And so we're committed um, as Reformed Presbyterians to excellence in exposition, right? We're committed to depth of exegesis and and to a solid biblical hermeneutic. And so I I don't want to take that for granted. That's that's really important. Um, but what were the kinds of things we're tempted to is to substitute um, an exegesis paper for a sermon, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so what we want to do is rhetoric provides the the tools and the practices and the ways of thinking that help us say, look, the preaching event is only necessary because there are members of the congregation to whom the scriptures need to be opened. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, God doesn't need to hear it. He commands it. Right. But you're not going to say anything true that he doesn't already know and have in hand. And you've already learned it. So you don't. Right. So 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 that that the event of preaching and what rhetoric helps us to do is what Jesus does over and over in the Gospels. And so he creates connections and he introduces people to key questions and issues in, in the Sermon on the Mount providing ways for people to hear what the kingdom of God is by describing it in 15 different ways mm-hmm. right? about things that, that ordinary people like us see happening in our world and can understand and then can make um, good, correct connections to the, what the scriptures actually teach. And that's the work of rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not to entertain you know, it's not to make people feel good about themselves. A lot of the best rhetoric makes us feel worse about ourselves when we're in the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. We really want to produce understanding. We want people to understand and and to find openings and entry points for them into the truth of God's word. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Yeah, you know, I uh, any, anybody who knows me knows one of my hobbies is I really like to cook. And there was this one time I was uh, it was kind of early on in my uh, cooking experience, and I was trying to make this lasagna. So I got these noodles that uh, you know you have oven ready noodles, and then you have noodles that you've got to boil ahead of time. So I got the ones that I thought were oven ready, but you had to boil them ahead of time. So I made this lasagna. The meat was fantastic. You got the ricotta cheese, the the sauce. It was mm, fantastic. Throw it in the oven get ready to serve it and you try to cut through it and those noodles aren't cooked, you know, they're, they're crunchy and everything. So everybody was fed. They were, they were nourished, but man, it was a challenge to eat. And that's kind of like what preaching is like. If you don't have good rhetoric, it's like, yeah, people are yeah. fed. Uh, people are nourished. Uh, people grow, but it's a challenge to, to listen to just like that lasagna was challenged, challenging to eat. So that's kind of how I view um, having a, a good rhetoric with your good um, exegesis and, and preaching and all of that. So uh, take that for what it's worth. But one of the things I wanted to ask you as a uh, professional in public speaking is uh, what are some things that you have noticed that uh, pastors maybe in particular, I guess all anybody who does any type of public speaking, but pastors in particular, what are some of our verbal tics and, and mannerisms that you've noticed that that maybe we could either get rid of um, to kind of help people not get so distracted by the preaching? 
the 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 kinds of things to kind of answer your question technically, and then we can take a step back. Sure. The kinds of things that are distracting are um, things that are so repetitive that middle school boys count them instead of listening to your sermon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a physics teacher in high school, 42 minute period said, and so we find 62 times. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. So it's not important for people when they're speaking to never say, um, it's not important. It's important not to say, um, 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 mm-hmm. uh, people have a high tolerance level for an occasional, what we call a verbal pause. And the first move is learning how to pause silently instead of saying a word. Mm-hmm. And if you have someone you really trust in your congregation, and you know, you love them, you can ask them, are there things that I say repetitively that I might not be knowing? And, um, and then when you have that, when you're told those things, you can start to listen to yourself preach, or you can listen to yourself preach and pick those up. I think that the important thing for people to think about, because verbal tics and verbal pauses are delivery issues, is that people know whether you're making eye contact with them or not. Mm-hmm. They know whether you're actually in conversation with them or whether you're in conversation with your notes or your manuscript. And there's no way to pretend otherwise. And there's a glass ceiling that every human being faces and learning how to look people in the eye and actually talk with them about what you prepared makes a world of difference in how people are able to hear it. Mm -hmm. And so I can teach people how to read a manuscript a little better, but I can't get rid of the glass ceiling that it will always be a manuscript and it will always mean that you're not connecting with human beings the way human beings respond best to being communicated with. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest thing to overcome. It's why some of us continue to rely on either manuscripts or so extensive notes that our eyes are not continuously with listeners. And if you get to the point where you can actually speak with listeners uh, conversationally, a lot of your other delivery issues will go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I know that's hard. You know, I know that's hard because we've been in class together, mm-hmm. but the value, the ability to express the love of Christ, even in the hardest teaching and to be able to listen to the congregation as they receive what you're preaching and know when they've got it. So you can move on or know that they don't understand it. And that you probably shouldn't have said the sort of the hypostatic union of, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you drop something like that and you get the, you get the talker spaniel look, right? That mm-hmm. <laughs> head cocked to the side and you're like, oh, there I go. Right. Uh, uh, so I, that's, that's how I would. Sure. Yeah, sure. So, so kind of just to, to, to recap, um, when it comes to, you talked about kind of this repetition where people no longer listen to what you're saying, but how many times you're saying it, you know, when I think about 
preaching and really teaching in general, but particularly in preaching, even one of the things that that we want to do is we do want to kind of repeat things so that people understand right. them. But but you're you're saying that it's not so much it's a repetition of phrases, not of content that that we ought to look out for. Oh, absolutely. So it's essential in good oral communication to include recapitulation, to cycle back to things, to say the same thing in different ways, but to reinforce things. Mm-hmm. And you see the Apostle Paul do that in the book of Romans over and over yep. again, right? Yep. They, yep. When you see something happening in Scripture, it's a pretty good bet that that's an okay thing to do <laughs> in preaching because all of Scripture was given by dictation. Mm-hmm. So it's all a record of oral conversation, which is why you hear begats all the time. That's how you remember in oral in oral patterns. You say you have to say both names twice, right, mm-hmm. to get to the next name, mm-hmm. so that listeners who can't read can remember. Mm-hmm. That's not a verbal tick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was uh, I think probably the most challenging book in your class, but one of the most beneficial was the book Orality and Literacy, and kind of talking about the differences between um, kind of cultural, like oral societies and written societies, and kind of the, the the benefit of communication in just oral societies. I found that very, it was a challenging book to read. I'm going to be honest with you, um, but it, it, it was a good book nonetheless. And then the the second thing um, to kind of help preachers grow in, in their rhetoric is to be speaking to people, not at people. Right. M- more or less. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, <clears throat> Joe, you can, you can jump in if you've got any questions on the, the rhetoric thing. But when we were doing uh, preaching in chapel, one of the things I didn't use a manuscript at the time I do now, uh, it, it was more notes, but so I would look up and look at people, but I would, uh, my, my tick was to look out the window. Um, so my head was up and I didn't even know I was doing this until uh, Joe kind of helpfully, uh, sincerely, helpfully pointed that out. Um, which, which I think enhanced the preaching because then you move to looking at the the cars going by on Penn Avenue outside the seminary to looking at the the eyes of the the folks who are sitting there in the in the chapel. So that, that's yeah. very good. Um, Joe, you got anything before we go to the mystery question, sir? All right, he says he says no. So we've got these these mystery questions, and these are kind of fun questions that we like to ask. Uh, they're, they're questions that are all in-house. They're, they're fraternal debates. They're not going to separate brothers from brothers. It's not going to get anybody in trouble um, one way or another. And we, we we did this one question that was a little bit silly. So we decided to do two. So we've got two mystery questions for you. Okay. So this first one was sent in by a listener. Joe doesn't want to mention him, um, but, you know, I won't either. <laughs> uh, but the question is, when you get a book and it's got a dusk jacket on it, do you keep it or do you get rid of it? Uh, simple answer. Mm-hmm. I keep it as long as it's not torn. Okay. And uh, and when I was a graduate student, I used to take the time to to kind of take um, to laminate the cover. Hmm. I don't have time for that anymore. Sure. So if it's a book that's on my shelf uh, and I don't use it a lot, it's going to have the cover on it. If it's something I put in my backpack or my briefcase and it gets torn. The dust cover goes. Sure. You know, it's it's interesting. So this is four for four. So all the guys that we've asked, we kind of go in cycles of four. All four yeah. guys have said they keep the dust jackets, which I find absolutely fascinating because Joe and I both get rid of them as soon as we put them on our shelves. We just find them the most obnoxious things. But you know what? We're, we're young. We're inexperienced pastors. We have no idea what we're talking about. So I guess yeah, uh, well, I guess we need to keep the dust jackets. <laughs> maybe we're just lazy. Uh, you know, I mean, people like what they like, I guess. All right. Yeah. So here, here we've got the uh, the theological question for you. 
sort okay. of. All right. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And Joseph is quick to distinguish between authoring, which was by the Holy Spirit, and penning, writing. So what human author did the Lord use from your perspective? If you had to just, you know, someone's twisting your arm, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Okay. So this is a great question because I don't have any, as a ruling elder, mm -hmm. I, I don't have a dog in this hunt and I'm mm -hmm. not going to research it or anything. I recently heard someone argue. So I heard, recently heard someone say that it was a policy. Oh, boom. And I thought, how intriguing is that? Because if it's a polis, the theology is going to be Pauline and Petrine and all mm -hmm. of that. So you're going to get that mix. But the idea of the of the clarity of the um, uh, of the connection with the Mosaic Law and the prophets and all that kind of thing uh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think my pastor maybe argues Paul mm -hmm. and, and like, I'm like, I think it's a fun conversation and, Mm -hmm. But that's where I, it, I, I'm intrigued by Apollos. Yeah, it, it is. And so my my emotional response right there is because this is uh, something Joe and I have been going back on. So he, he would take the uh, Paul perspective as well. And it's no surprise since he interned with the uh, it's the safe position to take. Paul yeah. is the safe position. Yeah, it's just... I, that's kind of my my thinking is because uh, we were talking with uh, David Hansen about this. And um, I forget what he said. I think something like like Luke. Um, but when you think about Apollos and you think about Paul and you think about the fact that Apollos was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila and, and you think like he goes back to Corinth and he persuades people that the Christ is Jesus, much like Paul did. It's like you, you're a couple degrees of separation, but it's the same theology. Um, yeah. So any, anyways, I think uh, I don't know what numbers we are at, Joseph, but I think it's it's a tie with our guests between Apollos and Paul. But if you throw you and I into the mix, I guess it still stays, stays a tie. So we haven't really settled the debate. It's still some of our Paul and some of our uh, Apollos. So there you go. That's our uh, yeah. fun mystery questions uh, for us. Well, um, I think uh, if there's nothing left, uh, Joe, if you've got nothing left to uh, ask or follow up on, I think we're good to go. So we'll uh, go ahead and land a plane. If uh, you're curious about Geneva, you can go onto their uh, website there and learn more. I know this is kind of the time that seniors really start to think about which co which uh, college they're going to go to. So you've heard about Geneva College. You've heard about the good education that you're going to get there, the good churches that are around there, and uh, the uh, flexibility when it comes to affordability uh, of the, the college there. So it's great education. So now's the time for you to look into that. If you like this podcast, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast catcher you use. You can share this episode on social media. If you have a question you'd like to ask the pastors that we have on this podcast, or you'd like to suggest that we have your pastor on the podcast, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com, bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. 